0: Welcome to Jury Duty, I'm your host Chris Terracone. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who is charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Kanarek and Robert Goodwin in Long Valley, New Jersey. Kanarek was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting, and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our last episode, we concluded our examination of the prosecution's closing arguments in the trial. On today's installment, we begin our look at the instructions offered to the Barrison trial jury by Judge Steven Taylor before sending them off to deliberate. That's all coming up right after the break. Before Judge Steven Taylor invited the attorneys to deliver their summations, he held a charging conference to present the parties with a draft of his final instructions to the jury. Then, after the summations concluded, he delivered those instructions to the panelists before sending them off to deliberate on the charges. In this episode, we are going to hear Judge Taylor's instructions and explore a few of the attorney arguments that helped him shape his final draft of them. We begin after lunch on Monday, April 11th, 2022, as the judge welcomes the jury back into the courtroom.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Please be seated. Ladies and gentlemen, of the jury, the evidence in the case has been presented, and the attorneys have given their summations to you. We now arrive at the time when you, as jurors, ought to perform your final function in this case. I do have a rather long charge to go through, and then we'll review the verdict sheet in this case. If at any time during my charge to you, you feel the need to stand up and stretch, I will certainly understand. I won't hold it against you, and please feel free to do so. All right, I'm I'm hoping it's an hour or so, maybe a little bit longer. depends on how fast I get through everything I have to tell you. So if you feel the need to stand up, please don't worry. I won't be offended by it. I understand. All right. At At the outset, let me express my thanks and appreciation to you for your attention to this case. I would like to commend counsel, first for the professional manner in which they have presented their respective cases, and for the courtesy to the court and jury during the course of this rather long trial. Before you retire to deliberate and reach your verdict, it is my obligation to instruct you as to the principles of law applicable to this case. You shall consider my instructions in their entirety and not pick out any particular instruction and overemphasize it. Generally speaking, these instructions consist of four parts. The first part deals with the general principles of law that apply to a criminal case. The second part describes the evidence that you may consider in your deliberations. The third part is about the portion of the Criminal Code of New Jersey that you must apply to the facts you find in this case to determine whether the state has proven beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant violated a specific criminal statute. Finally, the fourth part of the instructions tells you how to go about conducting your deliberations. You must accept and apply this law in this case as I give it to you in this charge. Any ideas you have of what the law is or what the law should be, or any statements by the attorneys as to what the law may be, must be disregarded by you if they are in conflict with my charge. Turning first to the nature of the indictment, the general principles of law that apply to a criminal case, the defendant stands before you on an indictment returned by the grand jury, charging him with two counts of attempted murder, and two counts of possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. The indictment is not evidence of the defendant's guilt on any of those charges. An indictment is a step in the procedure to bring the matter before the court and jury for the jury's ultimate determination as to whether the defendant is guilty or not guilty on the charges stated in it. The defendant has pleaded not guilty to the charges. The defendant on trial is presumed to be innocent and unless each and every essential element of an offense charge is proved beyond a reasonable doubt, the defendant must be found not guilty of that charge. The burden of proving each element of a charge beyond a reasonable doubt rests upon the state and that burden never shifts to the defendant. The defendant in a criminal case has no obligation or duty to prove his innocence or offer any proof relating to innocence. The prosecution must prove its case by more than a mere preponderance of the evidence, yet not necessarily to an absolute certainty. The state has the burden of proving a defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Some of you may have served as jurors in civil cases where you were told that it is necessary to prove only that a fact is more likely true than not true. The prosecution must prove its case by more than a mere preponderance of the evidence, yet not necessarily to an absolute certainty the state has the burden of proving a defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Some of you may have served as jurors in civil cases where you were told that it is necessary to prove only that a fact is more likely true than not true. In criminal cases, the state's proof must be more powerful than that. It must be beyond a reasonable doubt. A reasonable doubt is an honest and reasonable uncertainty in your minds about the guilt of the defendant after you have given full and impartial consideration to all of the evidence. A reasonable doubt may arise from the evidence itself or from a lack of evidence. It is a doubt that a reasonable person hearing the same evidence would have. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof, for example, that leaves you firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt. In this world, we know very few things with absolute certainty. In criminal cases, the law does not require proof that overcomes every possible doubt. If, based on your consideration of the evidence, you are firmly convinced that the defendant is guilty of the crime charged, you must find him guilty. If, on the other hand, you are not firmly convinced of the defendant's guilt, you must give the defendant the benefit of the doubt and find him not guilty. The function of the judge is separate and distinct from the function of the jury. It is my responsibility to determine all questions of law arising during the trial and to instruct the jury as to the law that applies in this case. You must accept the law as given to you by me and apply it to the facts as you find them to be. During the course of the trial, I was required to make certain rulings on the admissibility of the evidence, either in or outside of your presence. These rulings involve questions of law. The comments of the attorneys on these matters were not evidence. In ruling, I have decided questions of law and whatever the ruling may have been in a particular instance, you should understand that it was not an expression or opinion by me on the merits of the case. Neither should my other rulings on any other aspect of the trial be taken as favoring one side or the other. Each matter was decided on its own merits. I may have sustained objections to some questions asked by counsel, which may have contained statements of certain facts. The mere fact that an attorney asks a question and inserts facts or opinions in that question in no way proves the existence of those facts. He will only consider such facts which, in your judgment, have been proven by the testimony of witnesses or from exhibits admitted into evidence by this court. The fact that I may have asked questions of a witness in this case must not influence you in any way in your deliberations. If I recall, I may have asked a few minor questions, clarification questions for witnesses. The fact that I asked such questions does not indicate that I hold any opinion one way or the other as to the testimony given by that witness. Any remarks made by me to counsel or by counsel to me or between counsel are not evidence and should not affect or play any part in your deliberations. As I instructed you when we started this case, I explained to you that you are the judges of the facts. And as judges of the facts, you are to determine the credibility of the various witnesses as well as the weight to be attached to their testimony. You and you alone are the sole and exclusive judges of the evidence, of the credibility of the witnesses and the weight to be attached to the testimony of each witness. Regardless of what counsel said, or I may have said recalling the evidence in this case, it is your recollection of the evidence that should guide you as the judges of the facts. Arguments, statements, remarks, openings, and summation of counsel are not evidence and must not be treated as evidence. Although the attorneys may point out what they think important in this case, you must rely solely upon your understanding and recollection of the evidence that was admitted During the trial. Whether or not the defendant has been proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt is for you to determine based on all the evidence presented during the trial. Any comments by counsel are not controlling. It is your sworn duty to arrive at a just conclusion after considering all the evidence which was presented during the course of the trial.
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you.
0: In our next episode, we will move on to look at Judge Taylor's instructions regarding the evidence that the jury may consider in judging the facts of the case. But, in the final part of this installment, we want to call your attention to a decision that Taylor made with respect to one of the affirmative defenses put forward by Michael Barrison's attorneys. In our customary opening for this season, we indicated that the defendant's legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane at the time of the shooting and in the alternative because he fired those shots in self-defense. Before the parties delivered their closing arguments, Judge Taylor decided that there was no evidence to support the assertion of self-defense, and therefore neither included it in his instructions nor did he allow it to be argued by the defense team in their summation. Here is how the argument between Edward Belenkis and Judge Taylor played out during the charging conference.
2: Just so that the record is clear, since we're having a charge conference, what, what is your basis for asserting that self-defense through the use of deadly force should be charged to this jury? What what evidence in the record can you point to? And what, what evidence is there that the beating occurred prior to the shooting and that Mr. Barisone utilized the gun either during or after the beating to protect himself? Uh, uh, As I previously indicated, uh, the only evidence with regards to the timing of the shooting comes from both Cataract and Goodwin.
3: I believe there's ample evidence in the record. Their testimony, I submit, is completely improbable, nearly impossible. And again, based on that, again, if the court recalls, I attempted to ask Cataract if the beating occurred before the shooting and was... I'm not allowed to uh, get a response uh, based on the court's objection. So uh, I believe there is sufficient evidence, particularly in light of all the previous threats that uh, were, were made. Uh, the, in- the incident the day before where Robert Goodwin had uh, made a gesture with his finger at the gun and
2: uh, threatened to kill Michael and what, what was the immediacy of Mr. Barrison arming himself and going to the farmhouse? Because this is deadly force, right? And there's, there's got to be a reasonable belief that force is necessary to protect himself. And you have an individual who arms himself and drives to a location a quarter mile away from the clubhouse arm, armed with a weapon. So how is there a reasonable belief on his part that force is necessary?
3: With all the threats that she had made leading up to that, all the social media posts where she threatened to kill him and Mary Haskins, it could be argued that he believed uh, it was necessary if he was going to have any contact with her uh, to
2: what 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 was his purpose in going there that's not there's nothing on the record about that want the jury to speculate about why he went up to the house that day he, he went there to try to work this out he said specifically can't we work this out I know and, and where was that evidence from, from him. how was it from him how was it from Robert him? good that's from Robert Goodwin and Lauren cataract right their testimony so the so that part is accurate, but what follows is not, in your view.
3: So, we just can lie about different portions of their story. He certainly didn't come down, you know, and, 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 and say anything threatening, according to them. He, and, and the testimony is clear, she came out, she was angry, uh, she, she, she approached him, it's been described as her stomping towards him, <laughs> Uh, it's my belief that the, uh, their testimony uh, is, is not going to be believed,
2: and I think it's appropriate. Mr. Shellhorn? Judge,
0: only if you
2: need to hear from me. No, I, I, I don't think there is sufficient evidence in the record for a self-defense charge and self-protection. First, the defendant armed himself, according to the evidence, from a weapon he obtained on the second, I believe. so. 4 or 5 days before and when the DCP and P worker came she testified that Mr. Barrison came into the room where she was talking to Miss Haskins Gray on three separate occasions there was no cross examination of that witness by Mr. Belinkis so her testimony is essentially unrefuted and that uh, it's unrefuted
3: i don't believe it's unrefuted
2: Because the medical experts all testify. That's not substantive evidence. You can't argue that. If you're planning on arguing that in summation, don't even put it in your notes. It's not substantive evidence. Um, Mr. Barrison's statements to the experts, I will charge, I went over that charge, they are not substantive evidence. You cannot use his statements to make any substantive arguments to the jury. They only go, and they're only admissible, as it pertains to his state of mind, as determined by the experts. That's what the charge says. You cannot use Mr. Barrison's statements to experts to refute the testimony of the DCP&P worker. That would be using the evidence substantively. It can't be done. It's not proper. And that's why I said the testimony is unrefuted. There was no cross-examination. And the witness said, Mr. Barrison came in three times, asked them to leave. On the third time, he was insistent. The worker even said, Mr. Barrison... Kissed Miss Haskins Gray when they were leaving the room. And a clear import from that testimony is that he wanted to retrieve the gun because he immediately left, drove up to the farm while armed. And then there was a confrontation. Mr. Goodwin spoke to him, and then Miss Kanorak came out. And even if the jury doesn't believe everything that Ms. Canterac or Mr. Goodwin said about the incident, they would be engaging in this court's view in sheer speculation to determine that the beating happened before the gun was withdrawn and that Mr. Barrison withdrew the gun as a result of the beating and use it in self-defense. That would just be pure speculation. There's no evidence in the record. They went through cross examination, that was to impeach their credibility. So to the extent that they were impeached does not mean the jury has evidence from which in the record from which they can rationally find that the beating happened before and that Mr. Barrison took out the gun because he believed, reasonably believed, he was in imminent danger and needed the weapon, that it was necessary for him to shoot twice at Miss in the chest to protect himself. And it's even further speculation, given the nature of the testimony, that he took a shot that went through the porch door and into the house. A jury would have to speculate as to the reason for that shot being fired. Without the testimony of Mr. Barrison about the incident, there's simply no evidence in the record. And it's not sufficient for the jury to make that determination simply from The cross-examination by Mr. Belinkus. There's simply insufficient evidence in the record to support the self-defense charge, so it will not be given. And I might say the self-defense charge would be contrary to the testimony of Dr. Simmering, the defense expert. We found that the defendant's need for self-defense was a delusion on his part. I do find there's no substantive efforts, uh, substantive evidence in his case to, to support the thesis that the defendant acted in self-defense. It would simply be speculation by the jury, so it won't be charged.
0: And with that, we bring to a close this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrisone. Join us on our next installment as we move on to look at Judge Taylor's instructions regarding the evidence that the jury may consider in judging the facts of the case. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by yours truly, Chris Terracon. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and the trial audio is courtesy of Law & Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us. We hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.